This is the story of the biggest theft in history. The big steal of the resources of the biggest country in the world, Russia, by its own government. A Kremlin clique that runs the country like its own personal bank, a clique of bandits. It's also the story of how Russia is using every part of its state machinery in a war many of us don't even realize is taking place to subvert democracy worldwide. In this episode of The Big Steal... My assessment is that Putin has made a fortune of 100 to $160 billion. We follow the money down Russia's road to kleptocracy. Putin and his four closest friends have taken $20 billion a year out of Russian economy, and they have passed it on to keep it abroad because they know that they won't be allowed to keep anything if they lose power. I'm Gavin Esler, and in The Big Steel, we're telling the extraordinary story of how in one generation Russia went from communism to kleptocracy. At its heart, how the Russian government stole the country's biggest oil company, Yukos, from its shareholders and put the man at its helm in jail for 10 years. Mikhail Kordakovsky was sentenced to nine years in prison for fraud and tax evasion. It's a conviction that raised eyebrows throughout much of the West because Kordakovsky had been a longtime political rival of President Putin. The principal beneficiary of the big steal is Russia's president, Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin, and his behavior is ruthless. If we look at the spate of assassinations, and I'm not just talking about you know, the Skripals and Litvinenkos that we know about, but the, the Chechen fundraisers gunned down in, in Turkey and so forth, I mean, this is clearly not a man who has a problem with violence. In this episode, we'll reveal how the most powerful men in Russia used front companies to take over other businesses at knockdown prices, or to sell off their own assets at hugely inflated prices, all in the end paid for by the Russian taxpayer. We've already heard plenty of evidence of the ruthlessness of the Putin regime. Let's not forget that this regime is responsible for the deaths of many human beings. Vasily Alexanian is one of those people. They kept him chained, handcuffed uh, to a bed when he was eventually uh, allowed to go to hospital. And then he was finally released, basically only to die at home. Alexei Pichugin is being kept uh, in a penal colony in, in prison in violation of two rulings by the European Court of Human Rights. He's now in the 17th year of his life sentence on charges that are not corroborated by any kind of evidence that has been confirmed by those courts in foreign countries that were asked to rule in this case. We've also heard the shocking story of Sergei Magnitsky, murdered in prison. His only crime was to discover the names of the powerful Kremlin cronies behind the theft of $230 million from American financier Bill Browder's investment company, Hermitage Capital. They put him in an isolation cell. They chained him to a bed. And then eight riot guards came into that cell with rubber batons and beat Sergei Magnitsky to death. So how do members of the powerful Kremlin clique take over businesses? Well, there are different techniques, but one key point stands out. The authorities do not use the rule of law to help protect the victims. The supposed rule of law is twisted 
to help defraud them. In this episode, we'll explore the mechanics of the big steal and the aim of it all. Where does all the money go? With Vladimir Putin already believed to be the world's richest man, what is it that drives him? We begin now in detail with the biggest steal of all, that of the giant oil company Yukos. Swedish economist and Russia expert Anders Asland has studied the mechanics of how Yukos was taken from its shareholders. Key assets appear to have been auctioned off to a shell company at bargain basement prices before being absorbed into the state-owned Rosneft. Can we look just a little bit more detail about what actually happened to Yukos when it was absorbed into Rosneft and, uh, and so on? As I understand it, the market capitalization of the company was some $45 billion in the end of 2003. But the assets were bought for about $9 billion. Is, is that right? Well, what was bought for $9 billion was Jugansk uh, Neftegas, which was the main production facility. Uh, Yukos was an enormous company with all kinds of uh, assets uh, involved. But the main oil field was Jugansk Neftegas. And uh, there were a couple of alternative valuations made of it. And they were in the order of uh, $20 billion of this asset. So this was about half uh, uh, the company value. And uh, Jugansk Neftegas was uh, sold off in a fake auction around Christmas in 2004. And at the time, there were two uh, potential bidders, one representing Rosneft and one representing Gazprom. And Gazprom had assets in the West, and therefore it was afraid of being sued in the United States. So it wave drove from the, uh, the auction. And then it was a shell company that, as we later found out, represented Rosneft, that bid uh, and bought Jugansk Neftegas, uh, uh, being the own, uh, sole uh, bidder at the minimum price of $9 billion. So this was a, a sheer uh, robbery. The money came from uh, state banks. And later on, it turned out that this shell company sold the assets instantly to Rosneft. Let's be very clear about this. UCOS was broken up to satisfy alleged tax debts of around $28 billion. Ugansk Neftegats was UCOS's biggest production facility. And on the 19th of December 2004, it was sold at a state-run auction. There was just one bidder... Baikal Finance Group. Baikal had been registered as a company just two weeks before the auction, at an address above a vodka bar and with capital of just a few hundred dollars. Yet, Baikal somehow paid $9.7 billion for Yukans Neftegats, below half the company's estimated value. Three days later, guess what? Baikal was bought up by Rosneft, the state-run oil company. Coincidentally, the chairman of the board of directors at Rosneft was Igor Sechin, deputy head of the presidential administration, a close associate of President Vladimir Putin. In July 2006, Rosneft was floated on the London Stock Exchange. A company born out of the theft of Yukos was now trading openly on the international market. Do you ever wonder how Putin got away with all this? I mean, in some senses, it looks like the biggest theft 
well, that I've ever heard of, perhaps one of the biggest thefts in history. My assessment is that Putin has made a fortune of 100 to 160 billion dollars, and it's mainly coming from Gazprom. Putin and his four closest friends have taken 10 to 15 billion dollars out of Gazprom each year. And uh, that uh, they have taken about as much from uh, from other uh, companies as well. So say that they have taken twenty billion dollars a year out of Russian economy, and uh, they have passed it on uh, to keep it uh, abroad because they know that they won't uh, be allowed to keep anything if they uh, lose uh, power. And altogether, we account for eight hundred billion to one trillion dollars of uh, Russian dark money abroad and uh, say that one third of this also belongs to, uh, to P- uh, Putin and friends. So this is the biggest kleptocracy that uh, we have seen. There are clear losers and winners here. The losers were Yukos shareholders and the Russian people. The winners were much fewer, a relatively small group of people with links to Vladimir Putin. And just to repeat the extraordinary figures, Their windfall was, by Anders Aslan's calculations, enormous. Each taking 10 to 15 billion dollars each year from Gazprom alone, with anything between 800 billion to 1 trillion dollars of dark money going abroad, a third belonging to Putin and friends. So where does all this money go? Mark Galliotti in his book, We Need to Talk About Putin, claims just one of the beneficiaries has a luxury mansion outside Moscow with, among other attractions, an Olympic swimming pool and a garage for 15 cars. The mansion has a room built solely for fur coats. Putin himself is said to live a modest day-to-day existence, although he has built a palace on the Black Sea, which cost approximately a billion dollars. And some sources claim he has more than a dozen palaces at his disposal. All this shows how crime in Russia has changed over the years. Back in the chaotic 1990s, it was violent criminal gangs using guns and muscle to steal what they could. Then they bribed government officials to look the other way. But in the 21st century, crime is not a problem for the Russian state. It is the Russian state. The key players are using the state apparatus itself, including the law, to enable the biggest theft in history. There are two key consequences of this. First, Russia is a rich nation with a poor population. Russian GDP per head is around $11,000 a year. Britain's is $42,000. America's $60,000. Secondly, why would any outside investor risk putting money into the Russian economy, knowing it could be stolen, most probably by those with links to state officials, with the law on the side of the thieves. At the heart of this problem is something called Redistva. Louise Shelley is director at the Terrorism, Transnational Crime and Corruption Centre, or TRAC. Redistva is very different from the Western concept of corporate raiding. There somebody tries to buy out a business. In Redistva, in Russia, the business is taken over through basically criminal means, fraudulent documents, notaries that have been bribed. And unfortunately, in many cases, the individual whose business is targeted is arrested on trumped up charges and put in jail 
for months on end so they cannot defend and protect themselves and their businesses. Now, we focused on UCOS because it's the biggest and best-known casualty stolen in this way, but there are plenty of others. According to Russian official government statistics from the Ombudsman for Russian Businessmen, between 100 and 200,000 business people are incarcerated annually because of Raidersva. It is very, very current. I was an expert witness in in London Arbitration Court earlier this year in a Raidersva case. It is ongoing and the Russian government has not been able to do anything or shown the political will to stop this phenomenon. And it has an enormous negative impact on business, on economic development. And I would contend it also contributes to the fact that Russia is also a major source country for cybercrime. Phil Hansen is an associate fellow of the Russia and Eurasia program at Chatham House. Phil says President Putin and his clique of bandits have acted out Radistva on a scale never seen before in history. For them, in control of the levers of power, the risks are few and the rewards beyond belief. I think the change in the nature of asset grabbing is to do with the increasing power of the state in Putin's regime. Under Yeltsin, there was so much chaos and so little power resided in the state that private wars were possible. This is speculation, but it's speculation founded on some interesting examples. There is a quite different system for the very top people. It is a covert patronage, so that if you are Medvedev or Putin or any of the really leading politicians. You are looked after by a friendly oligarch. The oligarch knows he has to be friendly. He doesn't have a choice. Putin has the use of a a giant palace, which is not compatible with his income. No doubt these assets are controlled by them through other people, but it means that they are complicit in the system as a whole, in asset grabbing as a whole. And although they may deplore the effect on the economy of the lower level asset grabbing, they're not in a position really to do very much about it themselves. But all this raises another question. When Vladimir Putin has more money and more palaces than he can ever use, never mind need, what drives him on? Why does he either turn a blind eye to Radisva or continue to take part? Back in the 19th century, the Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy wrote a famous short story entitled How Much Land Does a Man Need? It's about a greedy peasant who wants great riches because then he shouldn't fear the devil himself. But Satan hears him, and it turns out that when the peasant dies, the only bit of land he needs is, like the rest of us, just a grave six feet deep. Perhaps Putin's insecure and humble beginnings play a part. Perhaps he sees wealth as an objective sign of his success, a reward for his mates, We've left politics now and entered the realm of psychology. What does Putin want? Mark Galliotti has studied him for years. He's not, I think it's fair to say, a very social individual. He doesn't make friends easy. Um, he doesn't get on with people. He's often actually quite clumsy in one-to-one relationships with individuals. However, where there are people who have become members of his circle, and this is particularly people who go back, and there are people who go back to his childhood and so forth, If they are within his circle, and if they are still loyal to him, he will absolutely have their back. 
And we have seen this time and time again. And whether we're talking about um, childhood friends who are allowed to embezzle on a truly industrial scale from the country that, after all, he's meant to be serving, whether it's in terms of clearly sort of people who have carried out assassinations and such like, if they're in his gang, and if they're still loyal to him, he will be loyal to them. Charitably, you could call this patronage, or even a perverse noblesse oblige, a ruler looking after those most loyal to him. But Putin is also clearly a Russian patriot, and in creating a kleptocracy, he's made Russia weaker and poorer than it otherwise might have been. In some ways, I still don't quite get Putin or Russia today. It's like that moment a month after the Second World War broke out. Prime Minister Winston Churchill, in an October 1939 broadcast, was clearly just as baffled then by Russia's intentions. He told the British people, I cannot forecast to you the action of Russia. It is a riddle, wrapped in a mystery, inside an enigma. For me, the more I learn about Putin, the less I truly understand but perhaps the key to the Putin enigma is something Mikhail Khodorkovsky said to me, which chimes with what we've talked about today. If you are not corrupt, you cannot be part of that system. That's quite striking, because you were saying that corruption isn't just something that happens in Russia. It is Russia. Corruption is a it is the system of, the, of governing or administering Russia. That's what corruption is. It's the system of administration. As an ordinary citizen of Russia, you can actually live your life without being corrupt. And, and, and you're not, very likely you are not corrupt yourself. And you could probably do without being corrupt, with the exception of small bribes to the police. If you Yet, if you're part of the three million army, a three million vast army of federal, regional, and local officials, most likely you are corrupt. So perhaps you don't take bribes directly, but you would use your position in government at all the different levels to get some benefits for yourself. And of course, you totally understand that if you lose your loyalty to the regime, your acts as a corrupt official will put you in prison. If Khodorkovsky is correct, and he above all should know, then Putin has created a circle of corruption which cannot be reformed. It can only be brought down and completely dismantled. The shock of that could be as great as anything in Russia from the 1990s. In the next episode of The Big Steel... The passenger airline MH17 is shot out of the sky and the web of lies being spun from the Kremlin continues to grow. As you are aware, Malaysia Airlines lost contact with Ukraine air traffic control, lost contact at 14.15 GMT yesterday. And that was 20 kilometers from Tamak Waypoint. We're working with the authorities to identify the cause of the accident. Yesterday, Malaysian Airlines flight MH17 took off from Amsterdam and was shot down over Ukraine near the Russian border. And in the Soviet period, Western governments and human rights organizations publicly criticized Russia for human rights abuses and failing to respect international law. 
So when Putin's opponents are assassinated and jailed and Russia proves the most troublesome of neighbours, why are so many governments so muted in their criticism? Has the West gone soft on Russian corruption and other crimes? We'll hear from Amnesty International. In one word, the current human rights situation in Russia is pretty appalling. Uh, it's been bad for years. It's getting worse in so many ways. Fundamental rights and freedoms, freedom of expression, freedom of peaceful assembly, freedom of association are going from bad to worse. The Russian authorities try to pretend that international criticism and international opinion doesn't matter. The Big Steel was presented by me, Gavin Esler, and produced by Martin Points Roberts at Fresh Air Production. Please make sure you subscribe to the series so you don't miss an episode.